Before we get started, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. In the words of Keeley Companies CEO, Rusty Keeley, when it comes down to it, there are two things that make Keeley Companies incredible, people and process. The strategic growth model called the Keeley Way ensures that Keeley achieves results on purpose, including five-year visions, scorecards, meaningful action plans. The Keeley Way allows Keeleyans to turn dreams into reality and drives goals to realize visions. Because of this relentless focus on people and culture, Keeley Companies has experienced explosive growth that shows no signs of slowing down. Learn more at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary, Christmas Eve edition. That's right, baby. We made it through almost 2020. We got about a week left in it, and we have about 24 hours left before Christmas Day is upon us. And this year, I think many of us feel like there's less to celebrate than in previous years. Many of us are tethered to our homes. Some of us find ourselves between jobs. Many of us are struggling in our finances or in our health in our emotional state of well-being. Many of us are just struggling in the way that we look at our life, at the life we've been living, and have some profound concerns over the life to come. How cool then to pause and listen to a podcast like the one that you are about to be introduced to today. My guest had a most unusual, most difficult, most trying childhood and yet Jared Krasoska is one of the most joy-filled, one of the most giving, one of the most supportive, one of the most living, and one of the most joyful guys that I've ever read, I've ever heard speak, and I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing. I think you're, you're going to pick up very quickly on his joy for life in this podcast. You're going to very quickly pick up on the fact that he is successful, but he doesn't talk about it and he doesn't act like it. He just is. And you're going to pick up on the fact that although the things that you've been through in the past don't have to define the opportunities you have to live an even better, bigger, bolder, more impactful life going forward. In a season of change, in a season of COVID, in a season of recession and depression and anxiety and everything else you have going on as you step into Christmas Eve, through Christmas Day and into the coming new year. I believe this interview, this conversation, this life story, and some of the ideas that are going to come out of it will inspire you to recognize it is not easy. The headwind is real, but the foundation is firm. You are worthy. You are a gift. And the best of your journey, the best of your days, the best of your life, even still, remains in front of you. So as always, buckle up for the ride, grab your journals, grab something to take some notes with, grab your cup of eggnog, that's right, baby, Christmas season, and get ready to meet my friend, and now yours, his name is Jarrett Krasowska. Jarrett, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me, John. Let's just roll. We were having so much fun before I had the record button going that I thought it would be a mistake to have one more moment of unrecorded joy. So uh, <laughs> I'm bringing in my friends right now who are part of the Live Inspired podcast. They heard me brag about you a moment ago, but let me ask in a different way. When I'm at a party and uh, there's a plumber and uh, an attorney and a guy who collects trash, they can tell me very clearly and succinctly what they do for a living. If I were to happen to bump into you somewhere along the line and I asked you, what do you do for a living, Jarrett? What is your response? Well, you know, um, that is could be a loaded question sometimes. Remember, remember from the before when you would travel and then you'd go to rent a car and they were just making small talk and they'd say, what do you do? And if I was just not feeling like having to explain everything and, and list my books, I'd just say, I'm a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> and then they would they wouldn't ask me any questions. Right, they yawn and hand you the keys. Yeah, exactly. But I'm an author and an illustrator of books for young people. So uh, you know, then then you get I'll get the question of like, well, what have you written? And then I kind of look at them like, well, have you had a kid? If you've raised a kid within the past 15 years, you might know them. 
but otherwise, no, I did not write where the wild things are. I did not, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me. Uh, and uh, so I'm an author and illustrator of books for young people, uh, young readers, you know, uh, preschoolers all the way through through t- teenagers. And uh, and truly, you know, that like like all of us it, it, now, I, I like this, like a, a slice of what I do, but it's the main reason of everything I do what I do because I'm also... Uh, a speaker. I'm also like I produce uh, YouTube videos and, and other content like that. Um, but everything is hooked to that engine of being an author and an illustrator. But you're right; it's not an easy thing to explain. It's not an easy thing to explain, and you're right. Depending on your answer, you can go down a rabbit trail that 45 yeah. minutes later you're still at the counter without driving away to your next meeting. So uh, I'd, I'd probably reading their manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I won't have you read my my next. Instead, I'm going to ask you a question. A whole lot of our our guests on our Live Inspired podcast have this formative story of being raised by champion parents, mm. just like a remarkable father or an incredible mother. And that's not exactly your story. At age three, you went to live with your grandparents for the first time, and you stayed with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, why did you move in with grandma and grandpa at age three? So my mother, uh, my mother was addicted to heroin and she started using when she was about 13 years old. Uh, and uh, she got, she got hooked on drugs very young. Uh, I was lucky enough that, you know, when, when she was pregnant with me, she abstained from, from using drugs. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and she wasn't a young mother. I mean, she had me when she was in her, her, her mid to late twenties. Uh, and when she tried, she tried so hard, uh, and it was, just became so clear that she wasn't able to provide for me the adequate care uh, a, a young kid needs and, and deserves. And so my grandfather, her, her father, had eyes on this the entire time. So like he housed us in a separate home. Uh, he kept tabs on everything. And he got all of the legal work lined up so that he knew the moment that uh, she was at her worst, like when she really slipped up, that I would never become a ward of the state and I wouldn't go into the system that he could legally take me, harbor me and, and be my dad. So it's interesting, right? So I, I have this experience of having a mother who wasn't able to, to physically give me that care, but she emotionally gave me that care over the years through, and which I couldn't always see at the time, right? Because I'd be, I'd be angry that she was in jail or in halfway homes, uh, but she, she would always write me letters and I have those letters still and I realized how she was there for me emotionally in a very real way. Uh, but, you know, I think every human being in my life will, uh, you know, aside from, from my wife and my own kids, like just be eclipsed by you know, my grandfather. He was such a hard worker and he took me in. And my grandmother was a, a wonderful mother, too. If you've, if you've read Hey Kiddo, you know that she, she certainly had her vices as well. <laughs> Um, but he, he was a man who, you know, he grew up during the great depression. Uh, he fibbed about his birthday so that he could join the Navy during world war II, uh, and, and, you know, did his service there for the country, helped build the highways in Guam and, uh, Hmm. just, you know, I think that we all will, will miss our parents. And my grandpa has been gone for a decade and there isn't a day that passes where I don't think, man, I wish I could just pick up the phone and call him. Your grandfather is one of the heroes of this story and an imperfect hero which I think is the best type, candidly. I mean, there's just, there's some flaws in this story, but your, your, your granddaddy just shines through. Talk about, talk about his upbringing. Just talk about what you've got to know about your grandfather as you grew up and became a man yourself. Yeah, he always shared stories about growing up. I mean, and you know, as a kid, sometimes that really bored you, but thank God I was paying attention because I can remember them. I mean, he would tell me stories of the literal icebox they had in, in the kitchen. And the ice deliveries would come through and it was his job to help bring that block of ice up to his, his, the refrigerator. Um, so he, he grew up without much, you know, uh, he grew up the, the son of immigrants uh, and he always made sure that not just me, but all the kids that he raised understood their, their lineage and, and the importance of hard work. You know, so when I was about to graduate high school and head off to college, he said, you know, someday I'm going to be gone. And when that happens, everything I've ever taught you, I hope you remember the importance of hard work. Um, and I think there's something that I have a better understanding now as a, as a dad myself, 
that like your main objective, you know, really is sort of like, I, I want these little humans to grow up and be able to be independent and, and as happy as they can be. Uh, and he had that same feelings and fear, except since he was a generation, generation removed, he knew he wouldn't live long into my adult life. So he was always very pragmatic. The only person in your entire life story that is his equal, as far as just being a remarkable character is Shirley. His oh my wife, goodness. Your grandmother. And in a very different way, right? Like in a different, uh, radically different, radically, radically different. Yang, Yang man, the, the, the two of them together, like they had to go together, Batman and Robin, they're one. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about Shirley. Okay, Shirley was uh, a complicated woman who would, you know, cuss out her children and berate them, but then be really, really sad that they decided not to live across the street from her when they grew up. Right? <laughs> so she, uh, you know, they're of the generation where you didn't talk about your problems, uh, and so, you know, I, I can't even imagine how say talk therapy might've aided my grandmother. Uh, I don't know exactly what she dealt with as a kid, but I, I surmise that she had some pretty dark things happen to her as a kid. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately for her that she found solace in the numbness of, of hard, hard alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so she was a heavy drinker. Her, her best friends are still alive and they're, they're late eighties, early nineties. And I, I still visit with them a couple of times per year. And the one thing they say is like, you always you always knew where you stood with her. She would tell you where to shove it, but then the next day she'd offer you a cup of coffee. So one of the things that's most remarkable about your life story coming through this episode, your mother's a heroin addict. Your father, we haven't heard about him yet because you've right. not seen his face. I don't think you hear his name until you're in the sixth grade. Uh, is, yes, that's right. But, and that but, was just his, uh, that was just his first name. And, and and you don't see him face to face until you're 17 years of age. That's correct. Yeah. Yet you're this seemingly wildly well-adjusted and happy-go-lucky guy. Help, help me sync those things up. <laughs> mother who did not raise you, an alcoholic grandmother who did, but maybe did not do it perfectly, a grandfather who became your father from the greatest generation, all these things tugging and pulling at you. You're not very athletic. You don't necessarily fit in with school. And here you are. I would say that in my late teens and early 20s, uh, that was just uh, probably maybe more of a facade, right? Like, a, like I'm just going to say everything's great. And that makes everything great. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, uh, then there's something about, you know, finding your person in life and starting a family together. We, that's where you have to really face things. And so for me, that was, uh, I started dating Gina in, in the summer of 2006. And by that December, I proposed on the front porch of a house we bought together, right? So, so for Gina, that who, who comes from your, you know, your sort of like prototypical American family where, you know, two parents, two kids, you know, steady jobs, the whole bit. Um, uh, and now, so she had to, in a very short amount of time, get used to something that I had a lifetime of understanding. Like, oh, like she'd be so confused. Like you, what, you haven't talked to your mom in six weeks. Like that's, that's, I can't comprehend that. You need to call your mom. Right. And so, but then over the years, she's like, oh, that's why you don't call her all the time. <laughs> you know, eventually she would get that. Um, but when Gina was pregnant with our first child, and this was, um, so we were married in 2007 and then 2000, 2008, uh, she was pregnant with our first child. And that was uh, just a huge Pandora's box for me of suddenly having a better understanding of what happened around my birth. Mm. Like, wow, like my father took off, you know, my mother was the other woman and imagining my mother being so scared. Yeah and pregnant and alone. And now on top of that, dealing with this addiction. Uh, so Gina, she's like, you need to, you need to get into talk therapy. So, so I think sketchbooks sort of buoyed me as a teenager and at sketchbooks allowed me to work through the, the stuff that was going on in my mind and get them onto the paper. Uh, and, and that was a, a huge uh, life, life preserver for me. But now just, you know, 
having talk therapy uh, and, and Gina's always on me and trying to get to go on a more regular basis, right? That has been hugely powerful because otherwise you've got that bottle of soda and you're just constantly shaking it. Yes. But then if you just, you know, you just open it on a regular basis, you're not going to have the explosion. <laughs> so if, if I'm hearing you right, the child who presented as being well-adjusted and, and uh, co completely fine, completely fine, was not that child, actually. Deep inside, there was a child who was more like a shaken soda that needed to be uh, lovingly released. Exactly. And, you know, and I think, you know, my grandfather once said that I was so sickeningly well-behaved as a kid, you know, and I think that part of that was fear of losing stability. Mm. Right. Like fear of like, you know, constant having this detachment disorder of like, oh, I'm going to lose this adult in my life that takes care of me if I'm not perfect. Right. Were you embarrassed being raised by grandparents? Sometimes. Yeah. You know, I, um, I always had a story in my back pocket ready to go. Oh, well, you know, my father travels a lot. And, you know, my mother works, she, she travels for business, so she's never around. Um, and then eighth grade graduation, they were having this party for the parents afterwards. And, you know, we all have these things that we do as kids that we will forever be ashamed of. Uh, and they're learning moments, uh, and we hopefully learn from them, but doesn't take away the shame we might still have in our gut. And I, I told, I was basically told my grandparents, like, oh, no, parents aren't going to that because I thought, you know, and eighth grade being the same school K through eight. So nine years of kind of trying to hide this from everybody. And now everyone's parents are going to be at this dinner. And they were incredibly hurt. Mm. Uh, and, and then I felt awful. And then when, when that dinner party came for the graduating eighth graders, you realize like, like there is no leave it to beaver situation for any of these other kids. <laughs> You and I were sharing offline before we hit record that uh, we both have experiences of being traumatized as kids. Yeah. Yours is a longer term deal in so many regards, but I at age nine was burned. And, and even after coming out of that into a very healthy family, an incredibly perfect leave it to beaver situation, man, I had nightmares for years that I, right. I seldom shared any with anybody, yeah. but I remember them distinctly. Like I could take you through a play-by-play -play reel of exactly what's taking place in these nightmares. You wrote about it. You shared about it. You drew about it. And so I'd like you to share with our listeners some of those nightmares with us today. I do. I, I hear you completely because those nightmares I, that were recurring, right? And obviously that was our little brains were saying like, this is something that's a concerning for you. That, you know, it's like your, your brain is trying to tell you something, especially your subconscious brain when you're, when you're, when you're dreaming. Right. And so I had a dream that I was in the middle of this field and then, and, and it was night and coming in from, from the, the perimeter of this field, like these monsters, like these zombies would be towering over me. But if I looked at them and, and gave them eye contact, they would freeze. But the second I broke that eye contact, they could move again. So it was like, I was trying to stop all of these monsters from circling in on me. And then I would, I would wake up and sweat, like just as they were about to leap on me. Uh, and yeah, there's something, I don't know that I ever told anyone about that dream. And now here I am, not only am I going to tell you about that dream, but going to write about it. I'm going to visualize it. And I'm going to put it in this book for everyone to, to see and read. The book is called Hey Kiddo, and it's rated, I would assume for young adults, it's young adults. Yeah. Teens. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's irrelevant, I think, to anyone that is raising children or at one point in their life may, might have been a child, which is the majority of humanity. So it's a really beautiful book. And in that same dream situation, you also draw a little picture of yourself laying down in front of grandma and grandpa's door. Mm -hmm. Tell me why you used to sleep in front of the doorway. So they, that's something that really shook them. That really, really shook them. Uh, because I was, my mother had trained me not to enter her room. So she, you know, would, would have her, a boyfriend over or a stranger over. And, and so she trained me that if in the middle of the night, I could not knock on that door, I could not go to her for help. I needed to, I would just sleep outside of her, her door. And so, but when I moved in with my grandparents, I had just assumed that was 
the rule there as well. And it really, it really shook my grandparents when they'd wake up in the morning and they would open the door to, from their, their, their bedroom and, and just see three, four-year-old me just in a fetal position sleeping on the floor. When, Jared, when you share this, you know, you've had almost four decades to begin processing this now, <laughs> but you're sharing it, I would imagine, almost like a, like a third person, like able to look back and view this little kid wearing his onesie outside of grandma and grandpa's door. What, what emotions come across your heart when you think back to, not to you, but to that little boy? Yeah, it's interesting because you're right. There is a bit of a third person quality to it because on one hand, I'm telling the story for, with a whole different point of view, but I also had to figure out how do I, how do I write this story? And you have to treat, even though it's, it's memoir, you treat the, the human beings as characters in the book. Um, and so it's interesting when we go through the editorial process, right. where I, re I refer to the Jarrett character because I can't say, I can't use I statements necessarily when I'm talking about this, this character. In 2012, I delivered a TED talk in which I talked openly about my childhood for the first time publicly. And, and it was this wild thing where it was a, a last minute ask. I was called at noon because they had a cancellation and the event started that day at four and it was at, at a neighboring college. And it was Gina who said, you should talk about your childhood. And, um, and the talk went viral. Uh, it, it became a Ted talk of the day. And I learned so much from, for lack of an expression, the aftermath of that. Right. So, so it went viral and then, um, I learned to find the right balance between sharing my story, mm. hearing people's stories and self-care, mm. which is the training I needed before I published Hey Kiddo. So how, how do I share this, these aspects of my life to protect myself from, you know, I'm giving this talk at a library and then I'm gonna drive home and put my kids to bed. <laughs> Right. So like, so it's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, um, you know, I've just, I've just learned how to manage those aspects of it. You gave a heck of a Ted talk. It's, it's one of the most, uh, remarkable ones I've ever heard. And I've oh, thank you. a whole bunch of Ted talks, but I really just loved it. I felt like standing up at the end of it and just cheering, man. So part <laughs> of the journey though, is not only about you and mom and eventually your father and grandma and grandpa, but you also had a a sequence of some pretty beautiful teachers that showed up in your life. Right on They time. were the best. So yeah. I'll go through a couple names for you and you can unpack who they are and how they impacted you. But Mrs. Alish. Mrs. Alish was our first grade teacher and she actually had had several of my other relatives as, as students. And she was just uh, a fixture of that neighborhood. Uh, yeah. She was such a lovely woman and, um, you know, not featured in Hey Kiddo was the fact that I would, you know, I grew up to be published and she was at every single hometown book signing I had before she passed. Um, Do you think I, Mrs. Dallas knew what was happening in your home and in your heart? And was she, was she reaching out to you specifically because she knew you needed someone? It's a good question. You know, I'm not sure. I mean, possibly Mrs. Alish did because that was a neighborhood school. And it, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is very neighborhood centric. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, most cities are, but there's a good chance she knew. Um, and, and I think some of my teachers might have known, like uh, Mrs. Casey certainly uh, was, was given a bit of uh, an inkling from, from uh, my, my guidance counselor. And so Mrs. Casey hired me to be the, the cartoonist for the school newspaper. And so supportive, and she's somebody that I'm still in touch with. We we we're in touch still. Uh, uh, but then you take somebody like Mark Lynch, who was a teacher at the Worcester Art Museum, and he was the the exact kind of art teacher I needed that pushed me. Uh, you know, I think as a, as a teenage artist, you really are transitioning from everyone always telling you what you what you drew was great and you're so awesome and that's incredible. Uh, and it's a tough transition where you start needing to hear constructive feedback so that your work can grow. And after reading Hey Kiddo, he thought he said to me, had he known all of this, he probably he probably wouldn't have been so heavy handed in some of the ways he pushed me. And I thought, wow, that would have been awful because that's exactly what I what I needed. Um, and here's here's something interesting too for you. 
all of the all of the teachers who are are living so mrs casey and mr shillelagh and mark lynch they actually voiced themselves in the audiobook edition of hey kiddo and that's awesome yeah, it was really, and the, and the audiobook is is much like a, a radio play, which which is incredible because I grew up, my grandfather telling stories about the shadow and listening to the, the only the shadow knows on on the radio. And um, uh, so we have a cast of about 60 plus people who came in to record the different parts. So I've I read that I've received a couple of awards or at least was nominated for several awards for the audible version. It won, uh, there are two major awards for what it could have won and it won both. Did you voice yourself? I voiced myself and um, it's interesting. So I, you know, there's there's the narrator and then there's the Jarrett character's dialogue. Yeah. Now the Jarrett character grows up in this book. So I read the narration as you're hearing my voice now. Uh, but when I read the dialogue for teenage Jarrett, I dropped my ass so it would sound more like the regional accent of Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> and then uh, to differentiate the, the narration to the dialogue, they ran the, uh, the dialogue through a filter so my voice is a little higher pitched. Now, the part of middle school, Jared, we hired uh, Jaden, who's a very talented young actor who I've known since, since he was very little. Uh, and it worked out, we caught him just before his voice changed. His, his voice deepened about three weeks after we recorded his, his lines. But uh, my daughter Zoe, who was then 10 years old, voiced the, the, the young Jared, the, the one that you've been describing uh, previously. Well, it seems like you have this wild encounter again and again and again with people who both positively and sometimes negatively affect your life afterwards. And you, you brought up Mark Lynch, Mr. Lynch, a moment ago. There's a scene from one of my favorite movies when I was growing up, Dead Poet Society, where uh, Mr. Keaton, that's Robin Williams' character, is having all the boys rip out their pitch. Like, yeah, I think his name is like Pritchard. Rip yeah. him out, boys. And he's having the guys rip out this guy who's written the introduction to poetry, saying you cannot write an introduction to poetry. It's something you got to feel with your heart. Yeah. You had that same kind of rip it out boys experience with Mark Lynch. Would you, would you share what happened when you brought to Mr. Lynch this book teaching you how to draw? <laughs> well, one, he'd hate to be called Mr. Lynch. And we get to call him by his first name. And, and if you're going to pronounce it correctly in Worcester, it's Mac. <laughs> <laughs> what did Mac say to you? What did Mac say? <laughs> he said, listen, kid. Um, I brought in, and I was so proud. So he taught a whole bunch of classes, including comics and animation courses. And I, I was taking a comics course and I brought in a book, How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. And it was all, and this particular book was published, I believe in the seventies. And it's very much like if you want to grow up and write and illustrate comics for Marvel, you, you need to draw this way. Now, I know there are many people of my generation that are, are graphic novelists that that book was everything to them and paved the way for them. Yeah. When I shared that book with Mark, his, the, his, his face just drained of any blood that was there. And he said, forget everything you learned. I, I can still feel and hear him saying that in that moment. And I was just uh, flabbergasted. Yeah. And I didn't know what that meant. And he said, look, you have a great style you need to follow that and don't think that you need to conform to what one person is saying, how you need to draw. Now, Mark was such a huge fan of a lot of alternative comics from the eighties and early nineties. And he really opened our eyes that there's, there's a world beyond the big superhero publishers. And if I didn't have that, I don't, I truly don't think that I would have ever had the courage to have everything that led up to Hey Kiddo, because I would have, I would have thought, no, I need to learn how to draw this character, this character that I did not invent on model for this different company. How important was Camp Sunshine in forming not only you the man, but you the author and illustrator? So formative. So Camp Sunshine is a camp uh, in Maine for children with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses and their families. So uh, whereas there are a lot of camps where just the ill child attends and then maybe there's a separate week for siblings, it's a family camp. So the families all live together uh, in, in, in a trailer or an apartment on camp. And then all of the counselors have the, the campers, the kids during the day while the, the parents 
uh, can connect, you know, via uh, team building games, but then also counseling sessions and just uh, time for them to talk about their experiences. And wow, like to be 16 years old and to meet all of these, these kids that are just, just facing the prospects of death, you know, they're not dying. They're living with the thought of death. Um, incredibly profound it allowed me to check myself in regards to how my problems are and compared to the other problems of the world but it also made me want to entertain a younger audience so before that i was thinking about you know jacked up superheroes beating the crap out of each other <laughs> and now i started thinking about maybe more tender stories and more gentle stories uh and what's what's interesting is there's an entire chapter uh, that got cut from the early draft of Hey Kiddo and that detailed my experience at Camp Sunshine. And it just didn't go with the, the through line for, for that story. So that chapter was trimmed down to just a couple of pages, but now that chapter has been expanded to be what will be my next book, which is coming out this summer. Man, give us the preview. It's called, it's called Sunshine, How One Camp Taught Me About Life, Death and Hope. And it, uh, whereas Hey Kiddo takes place over 17 years, primarily Sunshine takes place over one week. I'm assuming one of the characters might be a little boy named Eric. Yes, yes, it is. Give us a preview. Clearly, in the majority of your interviews where I've heard you speak about this transformational moment, you bring up Eric and you are moved, like your voice changes. Does it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, clearly meeting him changed you. Why? It did. Eric was four when I met him, Eric and his family. Uh, and he was there with his mother and his, his elder brother and sister. And he had acute lymphatic leukemia. Uh, just so much energy. And, you know, he was the kid who, you know, this is now to put it in historical context for everybody. This is 1994. So everything was Power Rangers for this kid. You know, the Power Rangers sword, the mask, the costume. Uh, and he was just uh, uh, such a Power Rangers warrior, this kid. And, and I remained in, in touch with his family when camp ended. And, you know, I became like an adopted son to, to that family. Uh, and, uh, you know, really watched, you know, the, the ups and downs of, you know, the hope and despair of, of dealing with childhood cancer, where... He fell into remission and then soon after relapse and then he needed a bone marrow transplant and ultimately he did die. He died before his sixth birthday. Uh, and that's another thing, you know, there is not a day that goes by where I, I don't think about Eric. Uh, and being a father now has dramatically shifted my take on that experience. Because now every time one of my kids is between the ages of four and six, I connect yeah. that to Eric. Where, okay, now my, my, my son is four and I connect, you know, that Eric was this age. And even when I pick up my son, like that, I can, yep, like Eric was this shape, like he was this, he was this size. Uh, and then as soon as each kid turns seven, I just have this, like, this weight of, of what good fortune I have that my kids made it to seven. Jared, I, I, I've got to ask because I want to parent better. And I want the so kind do I. So <laughs> don't ask me how to parent. <laughs> well, you and I need to go to camp together and learn yeah. how to do this. But just last weekend, we took our kids out to go get presents for people who are far less privileged than than my wife and I are. Mm -hmm. So we we adopted these little kids, and our job now is to love them and, and to provide a wonderful Christmas for mm -hmm. them. And it was not easy to get the kids hyper excited about this. It was like, oh, we got to leave. It's cold outside. We got to go to Target. It's going to be packed. Like every excuse yeah. in the world. And we're doing something fun that is good together. And then we're coming home for dinner. So what was it about your experience growing up that had you signing up? You weren't being dragged to Camp Sunshine. You were signing up to go and to invest your time to be away from home and to be serving these kids and their families. That is so cool. It is so rare. And I want it for my own children. So talk about the, the, the beginning of compassion for a child. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, wow. well, I mean, for me, it was kind of like I went to I went to a Catholic high school and, and, and they would send 30 students up every year to three different sessions. And it was kind of the cool thing to do. Like it was the kind of thing like you got to do as a senior that was a privilege. 
you know, if we had a graduating class of 150 students, probably 50 or 60 students signed up and they wanted to go, so they drew names from a hat. Um, I would, I would, I would, I would suspect though that my enthusiasm for that is my my grandfather also was a very charitable man. Uh, he never forgot where he came from. Right. He donated to the Boys and Girls Club of Worcester every year because that that was a place that saved him. Um, and I, you know, I think it's you know my grandfather did the same thing that you're doing with your kids, right? And the same thing that I'm and I did that today with with, with my kids. We they part of their allowance every week is to put a dollar aside for charity. And then at the end of the year, we figure out what we're going to do with it. And it was just today that they bought $80 worth of books from a local bookstore for a homeless shelter um, for, for the very same reason to, for, for Christmas presents. But I think that we, as, as parents, we just need to lead by example. And we suspect that our kids aren't paying attention but they will remember the way we behaved more so than the way we talked long after we're gone, right? And I, and I think that is, is how you, you, you raise compassionate kids, to, to lead by example. Uh, speaking of something else they can tell their grandkids, their daddy is a published author uh, many, many, many dozen of times over now. And one of the things you and I also share in common is the fact that we were rejected the first time and the second time and the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time and the sixth time. And I understand that you sent a couple hundred postcards before finally the rejection came to a, uh, an acceptance. Would you, would you talk about, don't talk about the acceptance. I want you to tell me why you kept trying. So my Mr. Shalili, who was my high school art teacher, he told us that you know every artist gets at least two years of rejection letters before anything happens. And so when he told 15-year-old me that, 15-year-old me then looked at two years as a finite timeline of how this process is going to work. Right. <laughs> and um, so when I was a junior in college, I had just taken a class on writing and illustrating picture books. And that December, when that, when that course was over, at this the after December of 1997, I sent that book out to a publisher, not thinking it would get published, but thinking, well, this starts the clock for two years worth of rejections. <laughs> right. And so uh, by the time I graduated college, I had received about a dozen different rejections from different publishers and a couple different stories. Then I went away to work at a place called the Hole in the Wall Game Camp, which is a very similar mission to Camp Sunshine. I, I, that was a place I worked all my summers in between uh, college years. And so that bought me until September after graduating to just figure out what I was going to do. My grandparents wanted me to come live at home. And I said, you know, it might make more sense for me to move to Boston without a job because that's where all my friends are going. Right. That's <laughs> and and I had a job teaching a couple of days a week at art centers. And it became increasingly clear that, well, maybe these books are getting rejected because the publishers don't like my stories, but perhaps they'd like my artwork. And if they liked my artwork, they would, they would hire me to illustrate a book that I didn't write. So every week I would paint a different illustration. I'd design a postcard. I'd go down to the copy store and I would get copies made, color copies made, which was like, you know, Brand new technology in the late 90s. Wow, like color photocopies, right? <laughs> and I would I would send them off to 80 different people at all of these different publishers. And then, you know, no one replied. And I would just do that week after week after week after week until then December of that same year, I received an email at my AOL email address. I, I tell kids like, you know, when I was your age, you know, we used to connect to the internet through a phone line. <laughs> And then they ask what a phone line is because they've, they've never seen one of those either. <laughs> and uh, it was this editor at Random House. And she said, hey, I really like your artwork. Let me know if you ever happen to be in New York City. She said, if you are, I'd love to meet you and see some more of your stuff. And so I, I waited a day to call back because I didn't want to seem too eager. Like I didn't really know what the rules were. <laughs> uh, and, and I said, yeah, I'm going to be in New York next week, which was a really stretching the truth. Like I had, I was going to be in Northern Connecticut, but still. <laughs> Close enough. 
close enough. And then I, not knowing if anything would come from that meeting, I phoned three other publishers to say, well, I'm meeting with somebody at Random House. It's like, do you think you can make time for me while I'm there? Which was a, a, a very marked difference from just two weeks prior in which I would fo follow up call some of the publishers in Boston. And one of the art directors just blatantly said, you know, it would just be a waste of my time to meet with you. Like you're just, your work isn't it for me. Uh, but then, I, then suddenly I have four meetings in a couple days time in New York City. And I left New York with a contract from, from my first book that was published. It was, it was almost two years to the very date of my first book rejection. So it was, it was a two year process, just the same. Well, at your launch party, every, everybody in all Worcester is there, I think, including your grandmother and grandfather with these big goofy grins on their face. So happy. Yeah. Talk about what it's like for you. Um, the son of a heroin addicted woman who's seldom at all physical in your life, never really met your father at that point, being raised by this beautiful couple from the greatest generation, but they have their own challenges, no doubt. And now you're in front of them as a published author signing books for the rest of the community. What, what, what feeling do you have when you're uh, on stage? Oh, that first book signing was unreal. Uh, you know, there were about 300 books that sold out before the event started. I mean, I had a lot of great local press and my friend described it as awake, but happy because there was all these people in line to, to like get their book signed or, you know, it wasn't like a wedding because some of these people you might not invite to your wedding, like your, like your pediatric dentist, like great guy, probably not going to get invited to my wedding. But if something happened, he'd probably come to my wake. <laughs> and so it was, it was just all of these, it was a, who's your life a moment, uh, you know, and, uh, and I was young, I was, I was 23 years old when that first book was published. I also had this do or die mentality. Like I, I realized I need to prove this to my grandfather, I need to prove to him that all of the time and money they invested in me and my education will have paid off for me to be able to support myself for, for this dream, which is so abstract and so not practical. Uh, uh, and yeah, I mean, and Mrs. Alice, she was, she was there at that first book signing and she, she got there a little bit late, uh, which is very uncharacteristic of Mrs. Alice, but she got there and she, she pushed everybody out of the way and she kissed me on the cheek, which left like a sort of like a very patented pending uh, Mrs. Alice lipstick. Uh, uh, she, she, she was always like perfectly done. Um, and she just turned to everybody and she raised one hand in the air and she said, I taught him how to read. And everybody gave her a huge round of applause. It was, it was powerful. It was really cool. Do you remember what your grandfather said to you afterwards or in, in connection with that event? He always verbalized that he was proud of me, uh, but he never was one to necessarily share feelings, right? Because of the generation he's from. Uh, but my grandmother was always happy to call him out. <laughs> so, she, so when that the, when the newspaper was covering the event ahead of time, and I talked about what they were able to do for me and raising me, she said that he cried mm. and cried and cried and cried when he read that. And and he 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 never said this to me directly, but I heard him saying this to friends that you know every time Jarrett has. Uh, any kind of article or press, he never forgets us. He always remembers where he came, where he came from. And that's what he taught us. That's what he taught me, you know. I think he also taught you to respect and to um, put on a pedestal in quotes, the little guy. Yes. Yeah. Lunchroom lady. You made uh, quite a season, a series out of, out of this, uh, this concept. But you've not only sold a lot of books and, and spoken to a lot of kids through that book, you've also spoken to a lot of ladies and gentlemen who work in that lunchroom. Talk less about the book and more about that impact of meeting these people who are serving food to our kids day after day and are usually overlooked, but no longer, not by you at least. Yeah, so so the Lunch Lady series is, uh, to have your listeners understand it, it's like, it's, it's like if, if you combined Scooby-Doo and Batman and Get Smart in the school cafeteria, right? So she's secretly a crime fighter uh, and and it's goofy and it's very campy and very cartoonish, but it's based on my real lunch lady in that when I ran into her as an adult with my first book published, returning to that elementary school, she was still there. She talked to me about her grandkids and I never thought of her 
life outside of school. Like I thought you don't live in the kitchen with the serving trays. Like you have this whole, all these other aspects of your life that I never knew. Uh, and that's where the books came from. And, but in touring for the books and visiting elementary schools, especially, I would meet uh, all of the people working to serve lunches. And, and this is starting, you know, from 2009 onwards. And in many cases, say the reading teacher, the librarian would bring the lunch staff into the programming in some way to get the kids excited. She, they, maybe they would, they would give yellow aprons to the lunch staff. And, and a few things happened. One is those educators were so embarrassed that they didn't know the names of, of the lunch team before then, because it's, they're groups that are working parallel in completely different spaces. Okay. Um, and when they, when they gifted these yellow aprons, they said the, the lunch teams, they had never been given gifts before. So it became so clear to me that here's, here's, here's a workforce that is so vital to the ed to educating all of our children and they they're not they're not getting the respect they deserve and they're so often looked at as as sort of cartoon characters in a negative connotation right yeah. and, uh cartoon characters in that we think of maybe chris farley and drag singing the singing the lunch lady song and you know that can be really offensive to people because they work really hard uh for 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 not a, a financial gain and, and across the board, there's a real love that they have for their students uh, that's very palpable and real. Um, and, I, and when my old lunch lady passed Ooh. and I attended her wake, the, the, I had given her a, a drawing of the character lunch lady framed and that was next to her casket. And her widow said, you don't know what you did for her by, by acknowledging her lifetime of hard work. No one ever thanks the lunch lady. So that, that prompted me to create School Lunch Hero Day. I think we're on our, I think we're, we'll be coming up maybe the 10th year celebrating it, but it happens the first Friday of May. And it's a, a way for, for kids to use creative efforts to, to express their gratitude. So it works on a couple of levels. It, it boosts the morale in the lunchrooms for those teams. It gets the kids being creative and also gives those young people an opportunity uh, to express gratitude, which is an incredibly important character trait to have. Uh, so it just, you know, so I basically use all the capital I'd gained through the popularity of these books to, to create that. And, and, I, and I think that this past year more than ever, when we've seen, you know, despite the fears of, of COVID-19, especially in the beginning when we did not know how this virus was going to spread, um, that they were working in cafeterias and delivering food. Exactly. You know, and they they are continuing to to feed our kids. Well, I think if most people understood how many of our children are, are on free and reduced lunch, they would be amazed to know, first of all, the need that is out there, but the need is being met by these incredible teammates. And and to see on your website the pictures of these ladies and gentlemen doing their work with their big grins on their face, serving these kids, and then being celebrated by you, it was deeply moving. And and Jared, in my Thank own you background, man. Like I'm in front of you today and I'm in front of this audience because of lunchroom type people, because of custodial staff and because of CNAs and because of nurses and mm -hmm. the people frequently we overlook as we go to, from A to B, that's who are actually the reasons why we are able to get to that second point. So I'm just so grateful that you, uh, you paused, that you made this a national day to celebrate our lunchroom. It's been amazing. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things too, where I thought I have this idea and you know, when you have an idea and you get excited about it and you realize like, okay, I, I can't give this, like, there's no giving this idea to make someone else do it. Like I have to implement it. And, but it was implemented too, just because all of those educators just picked it up and went with it, you know? And that's one of the really positive aspects of social media, you know, that, that if we didn't have social media, I probably wouldn't have been able to spread the word about this so quickly. So when I write, and this will be my final question before I shift into the live inspired seven, seven rapid fire questions. Okay. You can handle all of them. But when I write, I always, I always think of a child as I'm writing the chapter or a section or even a paragraph. I, I want them to take something from it. I want them to know something, to do something, to to change, to be better because they, they read something from their dad. So I'm always thinking about my own kids as I create work. 
when you look at the work that you've created and in particular, Hey kiddo, and you think of those two little babies that you are now raising and they look up to you and they call you dad. What do you hope that they receive one day when they read, Hey kiddo, what do you, what do you hope they get out of it? Well, my, my eldest has, has read it. Uh, and, and, and like I mentioned, she performed in it, but also part of it was, you know, for years, that was the forbidden fruit in the house yeah. of dad's working on this book. You can't look at it right now. <laughs> um, but I was raised with family stories. I was raised with tales that happened long before I was born, tales of, of my great grandparents who had long passed away. And I, I just am so, I don't even know what word to use, uh, but it's so powerful to think that I can give my kids that story in such a unique way. Like here's a 300 something page graphic novel right. about how this all panned out. Uh, and, and, you know, stories, I, I do believe stories keep people alive uh, in our hearts and minds. And, uh, you know, my eldest has never, never got to meet my grandmother. Uh, she met my grandfather, but my grandfather died when she was a year and a half, but she truly feels like she knows them and she'll talk about them as if they're people we visited with. Hmm. Well, and I understand Gina wears your grandmother's ring on her hand, is that right? She does. She does. Yeah. When I was, when I was a little kid, my grandmother said, you know, someday I'll get, and this ring is for, you know, when you, when you get married and find, find the right, right girl, like this is for you to give her. So we're going to wrap up my friend with, the, with the, you know, I could spend all day with you, but I, I know you have other works to do. So we're going to go through the final seven questions. They're called the live inspired seven. And okay. the very first one is this, what is the best or, or most impactful book that you've ever read? You know, one book that like is like the beacon of my childhood was the mouse and the motorcycle by Beverly Cleary. And I revisited that book with, with my kids, you know, when they get older and it, and it, it absolutely holds up from, you know, when I read it in the eighties and it was written well before then as well. Um, it, it just really inspired my imagination. Uh, I guess if I had to choose just one book, I'm going to choose the mouse and the motorcycle by Beverly Cleary. Awesome. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up that you wish you exuded as brilliantly today? Wow. That's a, that's a really profound question, John. Uh, I am going to say, and this might surprise you, but I would say, I wish that I still had that level of imagination hmm. because I'm constantly trying to tap into that. Gosh, man, we're going to have you back and we're going to spend an hour talking about imagination and creativity and writing and drawing and the lack of a lot of this going on in our school systems right now. Hmm. So yeah, you're, you're right. There's a as we age, we begin to lose a little bit of that creativity. I'm surprised though to hear that that's the one you say I need, I need most. You know, I'll tell you when I see drawings that kids send me or when I see drawings my kids make, I think, you know what? You spend your whole life as an artist trying to work on your craft and you go to, for me, I went to college to, to study. And now it's like, how do I make that what my five-year-old just made? How do I get back to that? Well, if your home caught fire and those two little babies are out of the house and your wife is out of the house and your dog is out of the house and everybody's safe and the house is on fire and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing that really matters to you, what would you grab? Well, I would grab the third kid because I have three kids. Oh, that's right. The third one's, the third one's out safely as well. <laughs> okay. And I would grab, we have three dogs. So I grabbed the other two dogs. They're out there too. Okay. <laughs> um, Mm, you know, I am so fearful of house fires because uh, I, I never had a house fire, but when my grandmother was put on oxygen, she also didn't quit smoking. <laughs> and so I scanned all of their photo albums. And so I would say it's the photo album. So, but now they're all on a cloud. I would I would grab uh, my flat files that have all of the art from, from all of my books. Very cool. I mean, I realize that's a hard question, but I understand the answer. So thank you for it. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and, and have a, a perfect day outside with anybody living or dead, who would you like to be seated right next to? Oh, my grandfather. I'm going to answer that before you finish the question. I, 
he we and we did that as a kid like he brought me to the beach every summer we fed the seagulls he told me their names were stanley and leroy and they came back every time to see us and i believed him so i, I would sit with my grandfather and we would feed stanley and leroy the seagulls what's the best advice that your grandfather or anybody else ever gave you oh um like okay my grandparents were very colorful characters yes i will pass on this information without the full cursing but i will imply the cursing because that's that's how so my grandmother whenever somebody wronged me she <laughs> would just take out her cigarette and say just tell them to go shh in their hat and my grandfather and this is the best piece of advice sometimes when you talk to a-holes you get shh on <laughs> And it's like, that's right. So if I'm going to spend my time talking to terrible people, I'm going to get dumped on. Uh, the greatest generation uh, have some wisdom to impart into the ages. Absolutely. What, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Nothing. I would not tell my younger self anything because that younger self needed to not know that things were going to be okay. They needed to work hard to get to that point where things were okay. Jared, it's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Are you sure I could only have one sentence? That, that's that what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Is there anything you want to add to that or have we put a, a period behind it? Um, I would say, just, I already, just, just read the books. <laughs> just, <laughs> that's what I made, just read the books. That was my grandmother coming out there. <laughs> uh, I have. I've enjoyed them and I've really enjoyed my time with you today. So I, I want to thank you for creating those books and for uh, for not just surviving that childhood that you endured, but to really thrive afterwards. It's, a, it's an incredible example, Jared. Oh, John, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and connecting with you and, and, and getting to befriend you. Well, my friends, that is Jared Krasaska. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. Yes, it is. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, Jarrett and I stayed on the phone a little bit longer and we continued the conversation. And what we have discovered here at the Live Inspired Podcast is yes, indeed, we provide some really awesome content that you get to tune into. But sometimes some of the coolest things that we talk about actually end up taking place right before we hit record or right after we push the record button and stop recording. That happened today. But we happen to grab the audio, so I'm going to share it with you right now if you'd like. I, I encourage you to keep listening. It's a raw conversation about COVID and also about our school system. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to the, uh, to the after hours between Jarrett and John. So take a listen. When we get back to not the, the new normal or whatever we're going to call it, you know, when we, get to the, when we get to the reset and we get back out into the world, I look forward to meeting you person to person, in, in person. Hey, brother, have a good day. And if I can ever do anything to promote your work or you or something you care about, let me know. Oh, thank you. And yeah, bring me back. We'll talk about imagination. We'll fill another 45 minutes with that for yeah, sure. If you ever really want to do that, I'm in. I think yeah. it is chronically missing in our education system right now. In particular, yeah. during COVID, all we care about right now is the multiple choice answers. It's well, you know, my kid was in tears today because uh, she was trying to the teacher was trying to do the cursive lesson over zoom and my kid couldn't get it. You know, there's part of me, like there was, no, there wasn't enough creative thinking on what the school year could have been. You know, tell me, what, tell me what you mean by that. Well, it could have been, what are the kids passion projects? Like let's maybe, maybe we don't need to use this school year to teach to, to we just need these kids to get through this. Yes. And we do not, I said, I sat my kids down at the beginning of the school year. I said, look, I don't care what you learn. I don't care what you achieve. All I care about is that you're happy. And when this is over, you can look back and you're like, oh, we made some great memories that year. So uh, we do a lot of work with, with school systems and our, the drum that we are beating as hard as we possibly can is your job is primarily just to love these kids. Because yeah. unfortunately, and you unfortunately live through this to a degree, many of these kids only get love at home. They only get love in that lunch line. They only get love when they fist bump the principal on the walk-in or whatever it might be. And this year to only have it be about cursive through Zoom and then chastised, uh, the anxiety that's gonna come out of this storm is far worse than the COVID that we're all dealing with. And that's not to cheapen COVID, man. It's just, 
we're setting ourselves up for failure if we don't start pivoting quickly. And I agree. And, and you know, um, I think our district requires their, their, their cameras be on, you know, because they, because they're, they need to make sure that every kid is safe. Right. And, you know, my kid turned off their camera because then they were just in tears. And the teacher kept picking, the host wants you to turn on your camera. And, I, and she's a lovely, beautiful teacher. But it's like, sometimes I imagine, you know, when you're in a classroom, no one's staring at you the whole time. It's tough, man. It's tough. And, and I empathize with everyone who's making all the decisions because there's no right decision. And now a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. What started in 1976 as a local paving company has grown into a national provider of construction, infrastructure, wireless, technology, development, and logistic solutions. Over four decades and 1,800 Keelians later, Keeley Company's roots still guide them. In the words of their founder, Larry Keeley, quality and service never go out of style. 